6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, An Introduction to the New Testament. Well, we're now going to enter our 14 of our Learn the Bible in 24 Hours as we begin our study of the New Testament. As we do that, we have a whole other perspective to gain here. The uh, New Testament has architectural features that are very similar to the Old. The Old Testament opened with the five books of Moses, and the New Testament opens with five historical books, the Gospels and the book of Acts. And you can look at the book of Acts as volume two of Luke, if you will. See, Luke wrote two books, Luke volume one, Luke volume two, if you will. So I always treat the four Gospels and the book of Acts as a group. They are followed then by 21 interpretive letters. Just as the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' interpretation of the law, they're really three sermons by Moses, in the New Testament we have 21 letters that were gathered and circulated by the early church as precious items because they were apostolic interpretations of, of what went on. So the Gospels tell you what happened, and the letters tell you why it happened and what the significance of it is. Of those 21, 14, we believe, were written by Paul. I say we believe because there's one that is deliberately unsigned, and there's a strategy behind doing that. And we'll talk about when we get to the book of Hebrews. We're among those. Some scholars have different perspectives, but we think it's, we have a, a good defendable position by arguing that the book of Hebrews was written by Paul, but deliberately unsigned, so it would be read, so it wouldn't be, rise ire and so forth. But in any case, uh, we have seven by Paul, and, I mean 14 by Paul, and then seven by some of the others. Peter, James, we call them the Hebrew Christian epistles. So there's 21 epistles. So we have five historical books, 21 letters, that are sort of like the op-ed pieces, if you will. And then we have, in lieu of the prophets of the Old Testament, we have the book of Revelation by uh, Apostle John. So we have 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. That's 66 books. People say, that's sort of strange. Everybody expects 70 books. Why 66? Well, technically, the book of Psalms is five books, by the way. So if you put that in, it's really 70. But let's not confuse people. Everybody knows it as 66 books. Okay. So... The Old Testament was compiled over several thousand years. That shocks many people because there are books in the Old Testament that are older than the books of Moses. The main example being Job. Because Job was an old book even before Moses. So uh, they span a period of at least 1,500, almost probably 2,000 years in compiling the Old Testament. Pulled together as we know it today in the days of Ezra. We're not going to spend a lot of time on the documentation there because Jesus Christ authenticated it for us. He quotes from it, quotes from each of the books, and so we don't have a problem because he felt comfortable enough to quote from it as God's Word. That should be enough for us too. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. But the New Testament's a little different kind of a creature. It was put together within one lifetime. Whole different uh, circumstance. We have four Gospels, and I say Luke in two volumes. 
uh, and I'm treating here the book of Acts as you know, Luke volume 2, so to speak, the Pauline corpus of letters and other epistles, and these were all circulated along with the Septuagint Old Testament. Now get the picture here. The Old Testament, which was written originally in Hebrew, was translated into Greek three centuries before the Gospel period because most of the people in the world, commercial world, spoke Greek. As the Christian church begins to emerge in that first century, their Old Testament was a copy of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The LXX abbreviation is, is the Greek version of the Old Testament. Most of the quotes in the New Testament of the Old, when the, in, the New, in the New Testament when they qu quote the Old Testament, they quote most of the time from the Septuagint, the, the Greek. And so the Gospels, these letters, and the Septuagint was a package that was used for instruction and for worship within the early church. Something that most people don't factor into their thinking well enough is both Luke and Paul rely on the fact that their readers were contemporary with these events. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, many of them in the congregation were up in Galilee and saw the resurrected Lord. There were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. That's one reason they don't have to argue hard for it, because they, they experienced it. Paul and, and Luke both rely on contemporary testimony. There's something else that's always instructive as a student to pay attention to what's missing, not only what's there. There are some very conspicuous events in history that are not mentioned in the New Testament. For one, Nero's persecutions after 64 AD. Nero, see up till then, most of the persecutions of the Christians came from the Jewish community by zealous Jews. In fact, one of the things, one of the points that Luke makes, not only in his gospel, but also in, his, in the book of Acts, that's why we believe, many of us suspect, that Luke, uh, volume 1 and volume 2, were the necessary documentation for an appeal to Caesar. We know from the Roman laws that if you appeal to Caesar, the, the facts surrounding your background had to precede you to Rome. In those days, that was an expensive project, because they didn't have printing and copying. It was a, putting a document together was an expensive process. But you notice, as you, if you read Luke carefully, the centurions are always good guys. And he goes out to some lengths to point out that the, the uprisings that occurred wherever Paul went were by the Jewish community, not, not persecuted by Rome. That was a development that came with Nero and following, the, the persecutions by Rome. Well, it's interesting, that started in 64 AD. No mention of that. The execution of the leader of the Jerusalem church, James, who led the council in Acts 15. He gets executed in 62 A.D. That's well documented. It's interesting that's not alluded to in any of the New Testament documents. What does this tell you? That the New Testament documents were completed before these things happened. This is a way of putting an early dating on the document, especially when some of these things would have been incorporated in their arguments. The Jewish revolt against the Romans in 66 A.D., no mention. The destruction of the temple is the most telling one of all in 70 A.D., the fact that that's not mentioned. So this is strong documentation demonstrating that the documents that make up the New Testament were drafted and in circulation prior to any of these events. In other words, they were circulated prior to 62 AD. We'll get to more of that. Now there is a parchment. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the Dead Sea stuff and all that, but there is a parchment. It was published for a while under the label of the Jesus papyri. That's just a, a secular 
a label for a book that was written about it. But there was some scraps, a little segment of text of Matthew's Gospel. It had been found in Egypt, and it was at the Magdalen School of uh, Oxford. There are three fragments. They're written on both sides, which tells you that the, this was a codex. The ancient uh, um, Old Testament was written on scrolls. That's why I always use the little idiom of scrolls when I talk Old Testament. I use a little scrap of parchment. As we go through these slides, I use a different background so you make you conscious of what came from the Old and New, Te uh, New Testament. A codex was started to emerge when they discovered it was useful to write on parchment on both sides and make pages like in a book. A codex is what you and I think of as a book in contrast to a scroll, which has rolls, and you, you, a scroll is a scroll. Okay. Codexes are handy because you've got pages. You can quickly get at page 237. You don't have to wind your, you know, through a scroll. So codexes became, started to emerge in this period about the time of the first church. And it's interesting that this is already, the fact that these scraps are written on both sides indicate they were a codex, not in a scroll. And there's three fragments written on both sides. There's about a total of 24 lines. They appear to be a segment of Matthew chapter 26, verses 23 on one side, 31 on the other. Something else that'll be important as we get a little further, they also conform their, to what we understand from Textus Receptus, and I'll come to that later in a minute here. But some advanced technology comes to our rescue. It turns out that uh, a scanning laser microscope can differentiate between 20 millionths of a meter layers of the papyrus. They can measure the height and depth of the ink as well as the angle of the stylus. They can tell whether the writer was right or left-handed. See, the technology today is astonishing. Well, using these advanced technologies, it turns out that a Dr. Karsten Thede, using a scanner laser microscope and comparing with four other manuscripts, and I won't go through the details of the other four manuscripts. The more important thing, what he's done from his studies, he's concluded that the Magdalene papyrus is either an original of Matthew's gospel or an immediate copy. It was written while Matthew and the other disciples and other eyewitnesses were still alive. The point I'm making is, you will find in your Bible helps many estimates of when certain books are dated. But you'll discover if you do your homework that the current scholarship is substantiating the dates far earlier than was previously believed. Many people are the impression that the New Testament was put together in the second century AD and so forth. That's nonsense. We're discovering that many of these things are contemporaneous. They were circulated before 60 AD, and some of these are dated in the, uh, in the 50s. So it's a, uh, this is within a decade or two of the events. Now, of the four Gospels, this isn't that important, but there's obviously a lot of material that's in common to all of them. Matthew is larger than the others, because Matthew took shorthand, and I'll come to that in a minute. But uh, Mark and Matthew are very similar, but the common material is shown here. John has the largest non-common material. John and, uh, 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 speaks uh, especially of the Judean ministry rather than the Galilean ministry, and we'll talk about that when we get there. Now, in terms of linguistics, a common language is Aramaic, but the, uh, Jesus also spoke Greek. We find occasions of both. He spoke initially Greek to Mary until he addressed her in Aramaic, where she recognizes who he was. She thought he was the gardener, and she said, Mary, and she recognized Rabboni. Gives him, we'll talk about that when we get to John 20. Pilate, he, he impresses me. Pilate personally could write in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. 
Pilate labeled the titlan on the cross. And he played a word game against the Jews, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But he, part of it was in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, and he wrote it himself. As a top official, he had skill in all three. Hebrew, because he was ruling the Hebrew territory. He spoke Greek, because that was the common commercial language. And Latin was the official language of the Roman Empire. So it, it gets more prevalent use later, of course. Now, there are some syntactic peculiarities in the New Testament. The sentence structure is really Hebrew more than Aramaic. Mark quotes Luke in hundreds of places. That shatters many people's concept here. You think of Luke as a Johnny-come-lately, because so much of what he learned, he learned by doing some research. But Mark quotes Luke, which means Luke's document was in place very early. Mark is basically the secretary for Peter. When Mark speaks, he's really speaking for Peter. He did the writing for Peter, apparently. Mark quotes Acts in 150 places. It's astonishing to realize the book of Acts was uh, uh, that early. And it's also clear from Mark that he knew Thessalonians, Corinthians, Romans, Colossians, and James. These letters of uh, both Paul and also of James. There are 600 evidences of an early date for Luke. That shatters a lot. I'm mentioning nothing because they're that important per se, except they will contradict some of the traditional myths that have surrounded the New Testament. There is a school of belief among scholars, they call it the Jerusalem School, for reasons I won't bother you here with, that originally there were Hebrew drafts, out of which about 40-45 came a rough Greek version, and then probably from that some Greek and Aramaic versions, sometimes called the Q documents. But in any case, out of all of this, we have a Greek adaptation by subject, which leads to Luke first, Mark next, and then probably Matthew, but Matthew drawing directly from the Hebrew for lots of reasons. And then, of course, John is a whole other act on the thing, about, probably about, we're dealing here, but we're dealing here within a, just a few decades of the actual events. And so, just to give you a perspective. Paul's letters, the first letter he wrote, probably wrote were the Thessalonian letters. And we'll deal with those separately in a special way, not, not because they're first, but because they have some topical issues that we're going to deal with later. First Corinthian letter was about the spring of 55. There were actually four letters to Corinth. We only have two of them remaining. And then the first letter of Timothy was about fall of 55, second Corinthians about 56. And you get the general feeling, most of these were anyway between 50 and 58 uh, as the letters. Other New Testament books are roughly in the same domain in the 50s to 60s, and we won't quibble with the details here. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the English Bible. This is very important to understand. The Old Testament uh, originals were sometimes referred to as the Vorlaga. And for us, the important event was the translation of the Vorlaga into Greek three centuries before the Gospel period. And we don't spend a lot of time on the background of that because Jesus authenticated the New Testament for us. I mean, the Old Testament for us by, by His quotes and so forth. But I want you to be conscious of the fact that that was several centuries before the Gospel period. Okay. Now, the, the Hebrews, the, 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 the Jewish uh, leadership, got really upset in the first century because they discovered the Septuagint, the Greek translation, had been adopted by the Christians as their Bible. So they had the Council of Yamnia, where they had a real problem to solve, because Judaism relies on sacrifices. There's no remission of sins without sacrifices. They have no place to sacrifice. The temple's been destroyed. So what they, in effect, are faced with doing is redefining Judaism. That comes out of the, the Council of Yamnia. But they also, out of that council, set the groundwork for what later becomes the, Ma the Masoretic text. When you look at a Hebrew Old Testament, you're reading probably the Masoretic text, and that's uh, derived from the Council of Yamnia.
Now, what also get, starts to emerge here is a group of documents that are called Textus Receptus, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as we go on here. Textus Receptus, about the end of the third century, Lucian of Antioch compiled the Greek text to become the primary standard throughout the Byzantine world. Now, something you need to understand is that the center of the world was not Rome anymore. It had been moved. Constantine moved it to Byzantium. All these councils, church councils you read out and so forth, are not in Latin. They're in Greek, and they're in the East. Byzantium was the capital of the world. The Greek text that was circulated widely throughout the Byzantine world is a text that is referred to as Textus Receptus. The received text is what it's intended to connote. And by the sixth, from the sixth through the fourteenth century, the majority of New Testament texts are produced in Byzantium in Greek. So it was the primary publication center of the Christian world. In 1525, now we're moving way ahead in the sixteenth century, Erasmus using five or six of the Byzantine manuscripts, compiled the first Greek text produced on a printing press, thanks to Gutenberg. This was a, the big event that really led to the Reformation, it was the, to make Bibles available. And his writings are the basis for what is formally called Textus Receptus. That gives you a feeling for the timing here. And uh, out of this we have the Old Latin and then the Vulgate. Jerome does the Latin translation of the Bible, with Tyndale and others translate to make the English Bible. And that's really what the one we're dealing with. I won't take you through the evolution of, from Wycliffe and all the rest from 1382 down through 1611, the King James Version, except to make a couple of points here. As we go through these Erasmus and the Tyndale Bible, Luther's Bible, Coverdale's, and, and so forth, and the Geneva Bible and the rest, you need to understand that the people that did these translations did it under penalty of death. It was a capital crime to be trafficking in Bibles by the medieval church. So these heroes were, that became martyrs did all this out of their commitment to get the Word of God out to the people so they could understand it, rather than have it filtered by a, a uh, church with its own agenda. But you finally get down to the King James Version from which all of us, all of us are indebted. King James VI of Scotland became King of England, and he called himself James I. And in 1607, with more than 50 scholars, they met in continual prayer and committees. The one thing that really distinguishes them, they were committed believers. They, weren't, uh, they were believers first and scholars second in that sense of speaking. Something else you should understand when they did the King James Version, they had available to them 5,556 manuscripts. So they had plenty of ammunition. The primary reliance of the translation committee was on Textus Receptus. That was their, their yardstick. And what they produced is the King James Version of the Bible. It has been heralded even by the secular world as one of the most noblest monument in English prose. The majesty of the King James has never been really equaled. And some of us have trouble with the Old English, but that it turns out there's less than a dozen words that bother you, and you can learn those pretty quickly. As you get comfortable with it, uh, many of us uh, find, uh, still find the King James the most comfortable version because of its majesty, frankly. Every translation has its problems. The advantage of the King James, the problems are well known and well documented. And most Bible helps key to that anyway. Some of the new translations have problems too, but they're less, no less well known. So, okay, there's something else, as you realize, the King James Version 
leans on Tyndale and the forebears, but it leans most heavily on Textus Receptus as they translate it into English. But I want to talk about another set of codexes or codices, the Alexandrian. There's Codex Alexandrinus that was discovered about 1630 and was brought to England. It's a 5th century manuscript containing the, almost, almost the entire New Testament. There's also Codex Sinaiticus. About 200 years later, a German scholar named Constantine von Tissendorf discovered Codex Sinaiticus at St. Catherine's Monastery at the traditional Mount Sinai. This manuscript is apparently dated about 350 A.D. So it's one of the two oldest manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. Okay? And there's also Codex Vaticanus. It had been in the Vatican Library since at least 1481, but was not made available to scholars until the middle of the 19th century. It was dated slightly earlier, like about 325 A.D., than Codex Sinaiticus, and is regarded by many as the, one of the most reliable copies of the Greek New Testament. Now what's going to happen here, to look ahead a little bit, Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, have been overly revered by scholars to our detriment. Because they are very old manuscripts, they tended in the, modern of some, in the minds of some of the modern translators to have extra weight because they're older. And that turns out to be a trap, and I'll come into that. These, these the Alexandrian codices have become very controversial in recent years for a number of reasons. So these occur in about the 3rd or 4th century, and they become the primary reliance of the newest, most modern translations. The NIV and many of the other new translations tend to lean very heavily on these Alexandrian codices. In about the 1730s, a guy by the name of Bengal produced a text that deviated from Texas Receptus, and he relied on some of these earlier manuscripts. And Carl Lockman did a similar kind of thing, and another guy did. Uh, not that critical. The real important guys are two characters known by as Westcott and Hort. Brooke Foss Westcott and Fenton John Anthony Hort were Anglican churchmen who had contempt for Textus Receptus. And they leaned especially heavy on these Alexandrian codices. They began a work in 1853 that resulted after 28 years with a Greek New Testament based on Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. The problem is, we've now discovered that those texts, even though they're older, are corrupted. And these people have really promoted it. And uh, we should talk a little bit about them. Both of these guys were very influenced by Origen and others who denied the deity of Jesus Christ. And they embraced the prevalent Gnostic heresies of the period from the headquarters of the Gnostics, which is Alexandria. The codexes we're talking about came from Alexandria. Alexandria was the fountainhead of the Gnostics, which were anti, really in effect, anti-Christian groups. Much of the New Testament letters are written in repudiation of the Gnostic beliefs. So we discover upon more careful examination that these codices that they're relying on, while they're excellent Greek scholars, are corrupted texts. And so this is one of the reasons you'll notice if you've been following Bible things in the last few decades, there's been a reaction against the modern translations by some who begin to realize that they're victims, in a sense, of corrupted uh, foundations here. There are over 3,000 contradictions in the four Gospels alone between the manuscripts. They changed the traditional Greek text in over 8,000 places. Now, by the way, Westcott and Hort, although they're very, very obviously outstanding Greek scholars, you wouldn't trust them to teach your Sunday school class. They did not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. 
So you got to be on alert. Just because a guy has a lot of degrees and a lot of prominence in the scholastic community does not make him a bona fide expert. In any case, we now have a question mark on Alexandrian codices, which means that puts a cloud on some of the modern translations. They're useful because they're readable, but be careful if you're doing careful, a detailed study because they've been corrupted. Now, what were the Gnostic heresies? Okay, I think it's Satan's strategy, the same one he had in Genesis 3. What did he do? He put doubt and then additions and amendments. Did God really say that? Well, this is maybe what he really meant. That's the kind, that's where you start going down one of these alleyways that get you into trouble. In about 55 AD, the twisting of the scripture begins. That's what 2 Peter chapter 2 deals with. That's what 1 John 1 deals with. They're dealing with the Gnostic heresies. So the, the Gnostics disparaged the existing writings. They mixed in Greek philosophy and concepts along with the revelation of God. In other words, if you look the Gnostics, add to it some pantheism and all these other things. If you're really in the know, you don't take those things seriously. Let, let us let you know how, what it really like. It's that kind of deception that's going on. So what the Gnostics did, they expurgated the Scriptures. The Gnostics were known for mutilating the Scriptures. They would throw out the verses that weren't comfortable. In 156, Irenaeus said of the Gnostics, Wherefore they and their followers have betaken themselves to mutilating the Scriptures, which they themselves have shortened. So we have evidence that that was one of the things, one of the tactics they used. The headquarter for the Gnostics, of course, was Alexandria, which is the primary library center of the world at the time. Now let me, we could spend a lot of time wading through scholastic arguments about the texts. I'm going to give you, I'm going to show you a shortcut. I'm going to show you a shortcut. There are, in the scripture, there are authentication codes. There's an automatic security monitor watching over every single letter of the text that doesn't rust or wear out and it's been running continually for several thousand years and most people don't know about it. There is a fingerprint, what I call a fingerprint signature of the author in the scripture and we'll show you that. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 